0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Those that study history know that not only is it not static, but it tends to go through seemingly repeating periods. We've seen times when freedom flourishes, times when despots seem to be the flavor de jour, periods where great bursts of innovation happen and where darkness and stagnation cast a pall. Even in our modern day, we see the tension between I alone can fix it and the power of grassroots and social networks to try and bring people together in a common cause. In fact, this last idea, the individual versus the network, is, according to my guest, esteemed historian Neil Ferguson, one of the most recurring tensions from the beginning of history right on up to the present day. He takes us on this remarkable journey in his new book, The Square and the Tower, Neil Ferguson's an award-winning economist and historian. He was trained at Oxford. His 14 books and numerous academic journals have garnered him international attention and acclaim. He's also an accomplished filmmaker and is currently a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. It is my pleasure to welcome Neil Ferguson back to this program to talk about The Square and the Tower, Networks, Power, from the Freemasons to Facebook, Neil, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Pleasure to be with you. It's
0: great to have you here. I want to begin talking a little bit about this general proposition, this general concept that you lay out of this tension, this pendulum that seems to swing between hierarchical authority and the power of of networks. Talk about that in a general sense first, Neil.
1: I think most uh, of history can be understood as a tension between hierarchical structures of power, like governments, states, armies, bureaucracies, and social networks that are more informal. And the way I try and sum this up is with the image of the square and the tower. I choose the Italian town of Siena as my example. If you go to the center of Siena, there's a wonderful juxtaposition of the piazza, the main square, uh, and a great power the Torre del Manja, that, that overshadows it and that that's the relationship i'm interested in the relationship between formal power structures and the squares where we mingle we socialize we sell things to one another we play sports and i think every one of your listeners will know that there is a tension in, in their own lives but between the org chart at work let's say the structure of power at your uh, at your office where there's a guy at the top or sometime a, a woman at the top perhaps not enough giving you orders uh And then there are people down below you that you give orders to. And that's the kind of standard hierarchical structure, almost like a pyramid. But then in in life, whether it's at home with your friends or on Facebook, there's a completely different structure, which is a social network that nobody's really in charge of, which is voluntary. And on that network, you exchange uh, everything from cat videos to who who knows, Donald Trump's tweets.
0: Is there then some kind of a relationship between freedom and particularly democracy and networks? Do the two go hand in hand, and how does that dynamic play out?
1: To some extent they do, in the sense that if you look back at the 18th century, a time of great democratic revolution on both sides of the Atlantic, it's clear that there were powerful social networks driving the revolution. I talk in the book about the, the network in Boston that united some of the makers of the American uh, Revolution. And in some sense, the entire enlightenment was like a networked challenge to traditional theories of power and social order. Uh, the problem is that the, the network is not necessarily a, a stable thing. Uh, and network-driven uh, revolutions can spin out of control descend into anarchy. That's pretty much what happened in France uh, after the 1789 revolution began. And I think we see in our own time that, that, that networks can be uh, hostile to tyrants. Look at what happened in the so-called Arab Spring, when very often social networks were able to propel uh, dictators from power in Egypt and, and other countries in the Middle East and North Africa. And yet, in our own time, more recently, we've seen those same networks uh, online being used by anti-democratic forces. Uh, think of the way that the Russians sought to disrupt our election in 2016 with by hacking uh, both the democratic, Democratic Party's uh, emails, and the Trump campaign in two very different ways. So I, th- I think networks are in some ways ambivalent. They can be sources of revolutionary energy. But they can also very easily be hacked and exploited by, by the enemies of democracy.
0: When networks are used by the enemies of democracy, when they're used by po- hierarchical powers, is there something different about the way that network works than when it's used the other way?
1: Not really, because all that's happening is that uh, an outside network is finding its way in uh, to the network. And this has happened often in history. Uh, It's not as if the Russians just started doing this. I I show in the book what happened in the 1930s when the KGB set about systematically infiltrating networks in the United Kingdom. And they were able to penetrate one of the most elite exclusive networks of all, which was the Apostles, uh, an intellectual society at Cambridge University. Uh, associated with some of the great brains of, uh, of the 20th century. By the 1930s, the KGB had recruited three members of this exclusive society who became some of the most valuable intelligence assets of the entire Cold War, leaking tens of thousands of vital documents to the Soviets during and after World War II. So this kind of thing illustrates a very, very important uh, problem about networks. They're very bad at self-defense. And this is one reason why, historically, we humans have tended to prefer hierarchical structures to distributed networks, because we're often very preoccupied with security. There's a reason that armies are not run like Facebook groups. Mm -hmm. They are not secure if they are.
0: Given the degree of networks today, the the ease of, the speed of communications, the networks that are available today, it would seem to argue that we would be in a time of, of extreme democracy. And in fact, that doesn't seem to be the case throughout the world at all.
1: Right. So when one looks at trends worldwide, they're certainly not uh, especially positive for liberal democracy. Uh, Freedom House just published its latest report, and you can certainly see in the data some evidence uh, of gains, uh, if not by authoritarians, then by illiberal Democrats, uh, the kind of regimes that hold elections but don't really have the rule of law and the elections aren't really free. Why is this? Well, I think it's because we exaggerate. The extent to which platforms like Facebook and Twitter, uh, or YouTube for that matter, would be natural allies of democracy. It's only uh, 20 years ago, I think, that Bill Clinton thought the Internet would doom the Chinese Communist Party because, as he put it, trying to censor the Internet like nailing jello to a wall. Well, we fast forward to, to the year 2018, and it seems as if it's the Chinese who have this figured out because the Communist Party has the big Chinese technology company companies, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, pretty much under its thumb, and it's able to use social networks in China to monitor the sentiment of the population in ways that the totalitarian regimes of the mid-20th century could only dream about. So I think we, we were probably naive in the 1990s and the early 2000s in assuming that, that, that the internet was the friend of democracy. It turns out that authoritarians and populists know very well how to use social media online. Maybe they know uh, how to use it better than liberal Democrats do.
0: Right, and you make the case that populists in particular have understood social networks better.
1: Right, and I think that, that, that explains more than anything else what happened in 2016. Uh, I, I imagine a great many of your listeners are still in a kind of shock that Donald Trump is the President of the United States. I don't think he would be if it hadn't been for the existence of Facebook and Twitter because the, uh, the President understood better than any professional politician how to use those tools so that his message went viral. He was able to run a very cheap campaign by the standards of his uh, his. Campaign Uh, competitor, she spent twice as much money uh, on the election. But he understood that uh, that Facebook and Twitter were the key tools of the new politics. And he continues, I think, to have a very good grasp of how you can use those tools, albeit to send messages that many of us find deeply divisive and, and alienating.
0: And as we learn more about things like network theory and all of the things that go along with it, Does that argue for the fact that understanding how networks can be used in a political context and a social context as well, that we're really in the infancy of it, given what we're still learning about networks?
1: Absolutely, this this uh, this revolution in communications and politics has further to run. Just as the Reformation five hundred years ago was just the beginning of uh, centuries of network disruption, Protestant movement that Martin Luther started was spread by the printing press. But the printing press was also able to spread the scientific revolution, the Enlightenment, the ideas of the American and French revolutions, even the Industrial Revolution. And it wasn't really until the late eighteenth century that this phase of network revolution ran its course, and we saw a return to hierarchical structures of power beginning with Napoleon's rise in, in France. So I think we're still at the relatively early stage of our network revolution, and I worry that what we're seeing in the United States and in many parts of the, uh, the Western world is a kind of polarization familiar to people who've studied the Reformation. The networks are allowing us to self-select into very hostile antagonistic ideological clusters, uh, and uh, the lesson of history is that that giant social networks do not necessarily create single, happy global communities. They're actually more likely to produce antagonistic ideological clusters. I see that as the most troubling tendency uh, in democracies today, and I see no sign of that tendency reversing itself anytime soon. And
0: further to that point, from a historical perspective, Are there circumstances that have historically led to greater networks, greater division within those networks, as you're talking about, or on the other side, to to greater hierarchical power? Are there things that precede that that we can see repeating itself throughout history?
1: I think what tends to happen is that in the period of, of networked revolution, things do polarize, crazy stuff goes viral. I mean, think of the way that witchcraft uh, went viral as an idea uh, in the 17th century, and there comes a point when the crazy stuff has gone too far. Think, for example, of, of France in the 1790s, when the ideas of the revolution somehow degenerate into crazy conspiracy theories and, and bloody terror. Era, that's the moment at which the pendulum begins to swing in the other direction. Uh, someone comes along who says, I alone can fix this. That was essentially Napoleon's message. And for most of the 19th and 20th century, it really was uh, uh, the, the, the story of hierarchies reimposing their power and social networks gradually losing their autonomy until by the mid-20th century you had regimes in the Soviet Union under Stalin or Germany under Hitler or China under Mao that were astonishingly hierarchical. All the power was concentrated in the hands of a single individual. And if you tried to network socially without permission of the regime, you could find yourself in front of a firing squad or in a labor camp.
0: What's different then, arguably in a contemporary sense is the democratization of information. How does that play into this?
1: Well, of course, there's something to celebrate here, which is the fact that the Internet has made a vast uh, array of data accessible in ways that uh, were unimaginable when I was... uh, a young student uh, uh, at Oxford, we had to get the library books. We had to fill in those paper slips to <laughs> call them up from the stacks. Information was much slower to access. And now my students can go online and, and download articles uh, in, in in seconds. Uh, and the fact that that's possible to anyone, for anyone who has an Internet connection is tremendously liberating. I don't want to make it sound as if I'm a Luddite who wishes the internet would go away. No, I, I really, I don't feel that way. But I think what's problematic is that when you have no hierarchical ordering of the information other than the Google algorithm, uh, there's no guarantee that the good information will rise to the top of your search results. Same applies to the Facebook newsfeed. What happens because we rely so heavily on these network platforms, and they rely heavily on advertising, and therefore they're in Incentivised to try to capture our attention to engage us, is that it's the most engaging information that rises to the top, not necessarily the most true. And as long as we are engaged by fake news and extreme views, and we clearly are, those engines uh, will tend to propel those kinds of story to the top of the list. And I think that's the problem. We've democratized information, but that has actually ended up being beneficial to, to untrue information or information that's extremely distorted.
0: And as another subset of that, given given that reality, do we see either in a contemporary sense or just in in a broader historical sense that these cycles of, of networks versus hierarchy are speeding up over time?
1: Oh, unquestionably. I mean, I roughly calculate that our time is an order of magnitude faster than the time in the, in the 16th and 17th century when it was the printing press rather than the internet that was driving change. In other words, what took 100 years then now takes 10 years, uh, and what took 10 years then now takes one year. So I do feel as if we are living the 16th and 17th centuries uh, uh, speeded up. And, and that means that we could get to conflict much faster than uh, we, we expect. I think that's the troubling feature of a networked world, that as it polarizes opinion and creates these hostile clusters, uh, we rapidly uh, descend from uh, using abusive language to something more, more dangerous than that. Uh, when people say, as they frequently do, um, I'm afraid on university campuses these days, that, that words are violence and, uh, uh, and therefore that language is, is a form of conflict, They they misunderstand a profound difference. It is very different to use hostile language and to use actual violence. I don't think we've crossed that line yet uh, in many places, but Charlottesville, of course, last year was an indication that that could be a part of our future if we're not very careful.
0: And do you finally, Neil, do you see this as, as a global trend at this point that these same issues that we're talking about are happening throughout the world right now?
1: It's absolutely global. Facebook is a global phenomenon. And uh, one of the most fascinating features of our time is the struggle for global predominance between the mainly American uh, companies uh, and the mainly Chinese companies that now dominate the technology space. Uh, So yeah, it's a global phenomenon. If you want to uh, see how global, just watch what happens in this year's elections in countries like Brazil, Mexico, Italy. Uh, I think we'll see many of the features that shocked us back in 2016 16 in this country, uh, as well as in Britain with the Brexit referendum, because the tools of networked politics are now available to anybody who wants to enter the political fray. And that means that Donald Trump will certainly not be the last reality TV celebrity to decide to try his hand at politics. If you've got an established brand, if you've already got millions of followers, you have a natural advantage in network politics uh, over the professional politicians who are unlikely to have millions of followers more likely to have tens uh, or at most hundreds of thousands. So I think that is the new reality of democratic politics. And we should stop thinking uh, of Donald Trump as a one-off, a kind of aberration. He, he may, in fact, be the shape of politics to come in many other countries.
0: Neil Ferguson, the book is The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. Neil, I thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Thank you.